You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. We hope this message is helpful to you in your journey with God. For the live stream archive of our worship services, you can visit youtube.com slash cornerstonelebanonpa. Christian community is best lived out in face-to-face relationships with one another. We encourage you to physically participate in a local church setting within your area. Learn more about our faith community by visiting cornerstonelebanon.com. We are uh, continuing in our summer sermon series through the letter of Ephesians. If you want to take your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're gonna be, I'm going to be highlighting a certain portion of the text Next week will be the last message on One New Humanity, and in preparation for Pam's equipping class, she's going to be talking about uh, being connected in a disconnected world, and again, focusing on what it means to validate others in a healthy way, and how does validation work when you disagree or when you don't agree with somebody. So be sure to sign up for that, especially if you need childcare. And today, it's going to be a little bit of a mixture between um, commentary on the Word, and we're also going to take a little bit of prayer time because of the subject matter, uh, which is really important. Um, Again, if at any point during the message you need to take a break and take a step outside, feel free to hang out in the lobby. Ron, can you make sure the lobby speaker is not on? (laughs) Because then that that would be counterproductive to the point of that. Okay, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I will be reading from the modified ESV, which means I take a word or two and I use a different translation. That's a little bit clearer, in my opinion. Still accurate to the Greek. Ephesians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or greediness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is greedy, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, and that phrase, empty words, is the idea of something that's plausible at first hearing, you hear it and you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense, and yet it doesn't really have any substance behind it. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons or the children of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the church and the world are in need of a new apocalypse around issues of sex. 
When we think of an apocalypse, we might think in end-of-the-world language, maybe about a nuclear holocaust or flesh-eating zombies. Apocalypse, in this sense, is about ruin and destruction and things being completely unstable. While this isn't unique to our modern age, many of us personally feel or wrestle with the calamity of sex gone wrong in our lives. Many of us, for different reasons, perceive a detrimental sexpocalypse taking place in our society. Couple facts, a couple stats, and again, whenever stats are shared, remember there's different ways of interpreting stats. Do your own research and make sure it's good and balanced and fair. One in five girls and one in 20 boys are victims of sexual abuse. In a lifetime, 43% of women and 24% of men experience some type of sexual violation. And if you round up in our attendance today to 100, just as an average, you can count how many people possible in here that have experienced something. The pornography industry worldwide is valued just under a trillion dollars per year with Americans contributing to 13 billion of that. In the time that this 13-minute sermon is preached, 1.5 million people will search for porn on just one famous pornography website. Institutionally and culturally, definitions of what marriage is and isn't are rocky at best. There tends to be less and less good examples of a healthy marriage between a husband and a wife where both delight and maturity are characteristics rightfully desired by the younger generation. Pornography aside, studies suggest that around one in five marriages have experienced some type of infidelity. And then, not to mention, there is the increased gender dysphoria and depression, mental, biological and poverty issues that complicate our view and habits of sex, the dishonoring of masculinity and femininity, the further separation of men and women working together synergistically, trauma of divorce, body issues, aging and how it affects the intimacy in our marriages, cohabitation and sexual human trafficking rates growing, all the shame revolving around sex whether it's legitimate and in need of a better way forward, or whether that shame is illegitimate and in need for it to be cast away. And just like in most areas of our life, just like in most areas of sin, we are both casualties to sexual sin and we're partners in bed with it. There is systemic unhealth that lacks conviction and empathy. There are faces and people individually that are mistreated and unloved a popular disregarding of compassion and truth in relationships, dealing with others whose sexuality is not broken quite like our own. The apocalypse is now. And Cornerstone, I have no quick answers for you today, and I think most of us know that the road to wholeness is always long and involves long suffering. But I do know this, is that we are, I believe, in need of a new apocalypse, a gospel apocalypse. So the letter to Ephesians in some commentaries is a reference to as this. It's referenced to as a community's guide for comprehending and responding to the apocalypse of the crucified and risen king of the cosmos. Everybody have that memorized? An apocalypse in this sense is your vision of the world. 
It is the revelation or the enlightenment of ultimate reality. An apocalypse is when the bond between heaven and earth becomes visible to you. It is an unveiling to see what can only be seen, not through simply natural eyes, but through the eyes of faith. The apocalypse that is of the greatest priority in our lives is that that Jesus is Lord and Savior of the world. But likewise, second to that, is out of that revelation, out of that acknowledging that apocalypse, unveiling that truth, how do I live differently because of what is true in Jesus? And so we want to take a minute before we do some commentary on the text today, and we want to ask for a gospel apocalypse to light up all of these shadowy places where, if we're honest with ourselves, we're usually just groping in the dark as to how to really walk in grace and in truth. We've been reading through the book of Genesis. We finished that up with our Bible reading plan. We've started Exodus, a little bit of Romans too. This picture here is an artistic representation of a story in Genesis. What do you think it is? Any guesses? Naomi, you're not allowed to say. Naomi's my wife if you don't know who Naomi is. Yeah, this is a, this is a picture um, representing Judah and Tamar. And if you don't remember, I'm not going to get into the details, but the story of Judah and Tamar is a very sad, twisted story that both touches on personal and systemic lack of responsibility in sexual ethics. And the thing that really hit me as I was looking for a picture, which it's weird to look for a picture on sexual immorality on the internet, was that, like, she's faceless, you know? That there is a veil in front of her face, that there's an outline, there's a framework, but there's no face, there's no personhood that's acknowledged in it, which talks about the tragedy of the story in multiple ways. So I want to ask you, um, as much as you're comfortable, that um, in a posture of prayer, let's take a minute to quietly bring before the Lord what's on your mind regarding sex. There's, you know, 80 people in here and probably 200 stories. I don't want you to go down any roads you're not um, ready to do. And in taking a moment, in prayerful reflection, this isn't about a magic trick that you can pray something and then presto changeo, everything's different. This is about acknowledging the hope of God's presence in the midst of our brokenness. And don't forget that spiritual friends, pastoral guidance, and professional counseling are important relational dynamics in all of this. So don't negate those. So let's just take a minute of quiet and just bring before the Lord what's on your mind, whatever that is. Don't say it out loud. Just bring it before the Lord. What's on your mind regarding sex, regarding possibly trauma or oddities, confusion, whatever else. Just take a minute and bring that before the Lord.
Father, would you lead us in our grief and in your kindness to repentance for the sexual sin we have or that we are engaging in? Jesus, we need a revelation and an unveiling in one of the most intimate places in our lives. Jesus, we need a revelation that puts courage into us to move forward, to get realigned with things that have been put out of place. Holy Spirit, in all the places where we have sold ourselves short or where others have taken from us that which was not theirs to take, We need restoration and the comfort of a path to healing. God, we just read that sexual immorality and impurity and greed are in contrast to walking in love. So reorient us to walk in love as defined by your goodness and truth. Thank you, God, for knowing what our faces look like in all of these unique situations. pray these things in your name. Amen. Peter, can you, while I'm talking, can you bring this up here? Sorry, I meant the other Peter. I didn't mean to, sorry, Peter Cook. Can you, and don't flip it over. If you flip it over, everything's ruined. It's not true. There's a pattern that I see in our text, if you look at Ephesians 5, and I want to talk a little bit about that pattern and just make some comments on it. You'll see at the beginning and the end uh, of our section that it talks about identity, that it contrasts two identities. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then it contrasts that at the end. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Do not be partners with the sons or the children of disobedience. So first we're reminded in the text that whatever is about to be said ethically or morally about how we conduct ourselves sexually is out of the fact that in Christ we are a new creation. When you either experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your life or you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and Savior, you were born again and you were reborn into a new way of life. And just like a baby has no idea what the heck is going on at first, we grow up in God's household, and there's different points as we grow up that we walk in authority and responsibility and understanding, and we start questioning a lot more things. So here we are told in light of God's love and this rebirth to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And this calling, this working of God's will is what Ephesians 1 to 3 was all about. If you remember, Paul sets up Ephesians 1 to 3 about what God has done in Christ and what is his purpose and goodness of his will. And then 4, 5, and 6 are more about how do we work that out in our lives. And so while there is legitimacy about the ways of God before we come to Christ, before we are reborn, there is also kind of this notion that we're going to be overly suspicious of the kingdom of God ethic if we don't trust the king. 
When there is no trust, any command that is meant for good restriction can seem oppressive. And so many times Jesus' ethics seem bonkers to the world because the world is not part of the kingdom. And so the world picks and chooses isolated sayings of the Bible not to endorse the way of the cross, but to put a fake rubber God stamp on their own political agendas, whether that be the left or the right or the leave me the crap alone politics of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, or libertarian figureheads. However, we are children of God and are to be imitators of God, not participators with the children of disobedience. This is how Paul sets it up in the previous chapter. If you go to Ephesians 4, if you just want to take a quick look there, starting in verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And this is, this is so great. So the Gentiles contextually are those that were not part of the Jewish heritage, where the Messiah, where King Jesus came from. They were the other nations. And where there was once this dividing wall between the nations, Jesus destroyed that barrier to open up the possibility of one new humanity. And this was God's plan all along. And so he's saying to the Gentiles that are listening to this, don't be Gentiles. Don't walk in their way. So the idea of the nations being behind the word Gentiles is that I think we need to hear today this, is that cornerstone, you must no longer walk as Americans do. You must no longer walk as Americans do. It doesn't mean you can't serve your country or enjoy your country or participate in government affairs, but it does mean that our allegiance is set apart for the kingdom of God and our primary affections are for the king with no comparison. And anything less than that is flirting with the powers of idolatry. Continue, verse 18. They are darkened, sorry, uh, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here are some words that Paul's going to use in Ephesians 5. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. What is that truth? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. God is calling us to live out of who we are. If we are not at very least following Jesus around, if we're just here at church as part of some kind of societal norm, our first priority at least with our hearts, is to seek out Jesus, to see if he is true and worthy of surrendering our lives to. Otherwise, a sexual ethic is just going to be behavior modification, which does have its benefits, but that will completely miss out on the substance of life past some kind of moral command. 
Identity is first as we talk about these things. As we continue in the pattern, Paul goes into some wisdom on some sex talk, meaning sex and also how we talk about sex. You can see here uh, through the passage, but sexual immorality and all impurity or greediness must not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. For you may be sure of this, again a pattern, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is greedy, that is an idolater, and we'll get to the consequence of that. And then also let no one deceive you with plausible arguments. So a couple quick word study interpretations here. The combinations of the Greek words here cover a wide range of sexual ethics that are to be avoided, with proper sexual behavior only being able to be expressed in a one-man, one-woman, lifelong, covenantal binding commitment. And I say able because just because you have that commitment doesn't mean that your sex life is healthy. Some examples of the things that we are to avoid. No intercourse or any other kind of genital use before marriage, along with no homosexual practice, even if consensual and committal. No adultery within covenant or prostitution as a single person. No incest as a couple examples. And in addition to the word that's used for impurity here, kind of pointing back to the Torah, and acts that make one unclean and hence unable to come into God's presence. We think about impurity in light of Christ and how it also talks about uh, caring for one another in the sexual relationship. That it's not just about doing the deed. It's about our heart and motivation towards the other as we engage in sexual intercourse. And then additionally, this talks about, as in the Jesus ethic, that lust of the mind, that even if there is technically not another person involved in a sexual act, say in the act of pornography, which I would argue there is another person, you're just distanced from them, that those lustful thoughts are also off the table. They are unfit for those redeemed by Christ. The inclusion of greediness in these passages also gets to the heart of matter in the sense of not having a mindset that always is wanting more of what others have and you don't. Furthermore, talk about such things doesn't fit with the new creation. To focus on the middle phrase in there where it talks about foolish talk, we remember that a fool says in his heart what? A fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so this is twofold. I think this plays out practically in two ways. In the world, sex talk is usually inappropriate disregarding the reality of God in the midst of those words, or appropriate sex talk is altogether mute, silencing redemptive conversation and mindset, listening to God's still, small voice in the midst of all of these things. Sex is to be meant for life and recreation, not just recreation. One of the sad facts is that the act of sex between a man and a woman that has the ability to create human life often yields itself to a culture of death. One in five pregnancies end in abortion. And without even considering the terrible nature of rape and medical complications, seven million unborn babies have been aborted in the past decade alone. 
Are we viewing sex just as recreational and whatever happens, happens? Or are we actually viewing sex as recreational, both in the covenant of the man and the woman, but also in what it has the possibility to uniquely do? Two quick notes about this section. I have two quick quotes. There's this fascinating article in the Washington Post in March that was about consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. And it was awesome because this wasn't part of a Christian magazine. And I'm always interested when there's something happening that's like this thing that we're doing with our sexual ethic in the culture is not really living up. What, what do we go for? What happens? Like it's showing a little bit of this need in the world around us for a gospel sexual ethic. The writer of the article says this. She says, young Americans are engaging in sexual encounters they don't really want to have for reasons they don't fully agree with. And so while there might have been a shift, say, in secular culture between a coercive mindset where you try to coerce somebody into having sex with you, there might have been some kind of good growth in saying, like, no, that's not okay. There is this consensual need that needs to be placed. Good, but it's not enough. Even when it goes well with sex, the quote continues, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections with each other and our deepest selves. Despite the many and popular arguments that it's only a physical act, it is clear to almost anyone that has had it that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after the encounter ends. An over-reliance on consent as the sole solution might actually worsen the dissatisfaction that so many people feel. Because if you're playing by the rules, if you're playing by the rules of consent, and everything still feels awful, what are you supposed to conclude? Another quote from a Bible commentator on this passage talks about the idea of sex and idolatry. He says this, he says that the important idolatries, like the idolatries that we really struggle with in a society and within the church, have always centered on the forces which have enough superficial, plausible power to be truly counterfeit. So there's something to the idea of consent is enough. There's this idea that, well, this is better than coercion, it's plausible, and even maybe a step in the right direction, but it's not God's ultimate design either, which is covenant. Therefore, they are truly dangerous. Sexuality, riches, and power. All idolatry is a form of greediness. For by refusing to acknowledge life and worth as a gift from the creator, it seeks to seize them from the creation as plunder. Like, these things are mine. Sexual lust elevates the desired object, whether a person's own gratification or another person, to the center of life. And it is hostile to the thanksgiving which recognizes God at the center of all things. And as a side note, be warned about this too. Be careful of inviting false religion into this topic. One that is just about the external and not also about what's going on internally. You could be sexually pure your whole life, whatever that means, and still have a twisted view of sex and your body. You could keep your tongue from improper use of certain expletives, and yet the words coming out of your mouth can be destructive and poisonous. Don't fool yourself in some type of self-righteous trip where morality is the end goal. And then finally, the last section about our devotion kind of falling away if we give ourselves over to these things. 
In the book of Revelation, what is the main warning that God, that Jesus gives to the Ephesians? Do you remember? Yeah. Return to your first love. Do not forget your first love. Because if you don't, if the love that we have starts to shrink, if intimacy starts to grow cold and we don't, don't start living as God's beloved, we start living as though we are God's. We not only disregard God's glory due to his name, but we also start flirting with self-destruction. We see here, it talks about sexual immorality shouldn't even be named among you. For it not to be named is proper among the saints. Talk about the way we talk about sex or other language that we use, which are out of place. And then their pattern continues about, well, what kind of does this lead to if we disregard these things? The one that engages in sexual morality and and purity and in greediness has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And yes, we can think final destination in that, but also think about what we're missing out in the inheritance of God now. Also, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Where there is mercy and grace that is offered through the cross and through the kingdom of God, Paul and God and the New Testament doesn't pull any punches that there is a way that we are to be on a trajectory of living in all of these things. There are consequences we will experience if we constantly ignore these wisdom commands. And sometimes they are immediate. Other times they nickel and dime us over and over again until we are utterly empty sexually. If you remember in the book of Genesis, the odd story of Esau wanting so bad to eat a bowl of soup because he thought he was going to die. And then his stupid brother Jacob with his deceitful ways comes in and they make this bargain to trade. Hey, I'll make you a bowl of soup, but you have to surrender your birthright. Esau forfeits his birthright and he also forfeits some of the possibility he had set up in his life for a single meal. And Hebrews 12 talks about this and it uses this cautioning us against being sexually immoral. And as we listen to this, just know, like, don't get me wrong, I can speak from experience of sexual brokenness that I'm still dealing with and that there is mercy and hope available wherever you are, but sometimes we lose things that will never be regained the side of heaven. And so we don't just cast off like, well, God's grace will take care of that. God's grace will take care of that, but maybe not in the way you think. Hebrews 12 says this, it says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. One of the ways that the wrath of God comes upon our lives is simply by letting us have what we say we want. In the opening chapters of Romans, we see the phrase, God gave them over three times, all of them dealing with some type of sexual sin or idolatry. God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity. God gave them over to the degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And if we're thinking about 
them and those people, Paul also turns it on its head at the beginning of chapter two and says, why do you judge those people that do such things when you do the exact same thing? And so here is really the pinch point that goes back to our identity being found in Christ and walking out of that identity in a worthy manner. In one very real sense, our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are not the state's. Our bodies don't belong to the norms of society. Our bodies aren't for whatever we want to do with them. And that is incredibly good news. Because when we give ourselves over to ourselves or to the state or to the society, there is sin which divides, which separates, which corrupts because none of those entities have unconditioned love and faithful goodness at their core. But with the Lord, who first gave us his body, we can put our trust. Paul says it this way in another place in the scriptures. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your body, individually and also corporately, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have received from God? You are not your own, for you were bought, you were redeemed with a price. So glorify God in your body. Dr. Tim Mackey, who is the, the scholar behind the Bible Project and his class, said that doing whatever we want with our bodies is based on a deception, meaning that it's not reality. Being able to do what I want with my body outside of its design for covenantal commitment is actually a deception. It will invite self-destruction into my life. Breathe. So prayer and practice for this week. I didn't start my timer. I'm sorry if this is long. Prayer and practice for this week. So in reflecting on your sexuality, all the things that could be involved in it, ask God in prayer this week or over the next month, the next couple weeks, God, what am I actually longing for? Use Psalm 63 as a guide for that. You know, it seems as that, that there is no um, sexual activity in the new creation in heaven. The goodness and commitment of the marriage covenant ends at death and that in the resurrection, people are, are no longer in that covenant in that way. So if current sexual desire and behavior are signposts to other things that are more everlasting, what are those other things? And how can I pursue those longings in a healthy, embodied way? What am I actually longing for in my sexuality? And then also in praxis, if you notice, so this is kind of a, I couldn't fit this on the screen because it's wide. I'm sorry if you can't see this. This is the best I could do. This is how the, our passage is kind of laid out. Like I said, that there was kind of a pattern to it where there's a, therefore be this, imitators of God, therefore don't be this, participate. And then it talks about sex and talk and sex and talk and what is improper, what is out of place with talk, what happens if you continue in the improperness, there's a loss of inheritance, what happens if you uh, believe empty words, there's wrath that comes upon. And then what is right in the middle of our text? 
in a positive way. Did anybody catch that? What is, I don't want to like make it a prescription, but what is in the middle of our text? Almost in Greek, Jim, I would need you to count the Greek words, I don't know, but in English, it's pretty darn close to the center of it. What is it? Thanksgiving. It's weird. What is the antidote to some degree of sexual immorality? Thanksgiving. What is the antidote to impurity? Thanksgiving. What is the antidote to greediness? Thanksgiving. The center point of how I lined out the text for this morning focuses on Thanksgiving. Instead of those things, let there be thanksgiving. One early church father commented that thanksgiving not only expresses the contentment that already is, but it can also create or pull you into joy that is waiting for you. And so in the spirit of Psalm 50, a thankful heart prepares the way for you, my God. So praxis, go to a trusted spiritual friend over the next couple of weeks. We have sex talk and just about how we use our, our language Ask a friend that you trust, how do you hear my normal character of speech when I talk? Does it overly rely on cynicism or gossip or complaint or flattery or insincerity? Or don't you even know because I'm so walled off to actually share anything with you? And just to be clear, when we're talking about Thanksgiving, we're not looking to have flowers in our hair and rainbows coming out of our butts. It's painful. Rainbows out of the butts is painful. Because we live in the real world with real brokenness and sin, but in that real world, we also have a real resurrected Lord and Savior, and we have a real hope for the future. So those are the two points of prayer and praxis. God, what am I actually longing for in my sexuality, in my sexual behavior? And then with a trusted friend, what do you observe in my normal character of speech? Be gracious to one another, be merciful to one another, but like just have a conversation about that. Be courageous with one another. Christy, your team can come back up. Last uh, closing exhortation, Peter Cook, can you remove this? So in the uh, art world, there are, um, there's this kind of art that's called anamorphic art. And there's different ways of, of what kind of art this is, but it ultimately means to transform or shape back that the art is somehow playing with perspective. And sometimes what it'll do in this type of art, it'll take something that's already beautiful and it will uh, reveal a stunning perspective when you have the right tools. So you have this great thing, but then when you put the right tool in the middle of it, do you see what's in the middle of it with the mirror? So there's, there's a portrait of a man's face in the middle. So this down here is reflecting, the, the mirror is reflecting what is going on down here. And you can kind of see the face if you look closely. But you wouldn't necessarily notice it if you weren't looking for it unless you have the right tool that lets you reflect and see it from a different angle. There's also a type of art um, 
that unlocks a kind of awesomeness to it and it's hidden. Sometimes it takes a particular perspective. It takes a participation from you, the viewer, to change your position to see what the creator or the maker actually has in store. And so this is, I think it's like 1,200 little tiny uh, um, styrofoam balls. And then when you walk into the art space, you see that and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool that it's, you know, floating there. It's kind of abstract or whatever. And then you start moving around. You move around again. And then when you get to a certain perspective, it lines up. And you can see what the creator or the maker meant for it to be. And then finally, another version of this is taking trash, taking what is used up, taking what has been discarded and shining light on it to recreate something beautiful. So you walk into the art exhibit here and you see this junk on the table and you're like, okay, it's something about consumption and consumerism and waste and all that other stuff. But then when light is placed at a certain perspective, it actually gives the silhouette of a city on a hill. Cornerstone, may you be equipped with the right tools to see what's really in front of you. Cornerstone, let God move you to a new perspective so that you can have an undistorted view of sex. And God, may you shine your light to transform this garbage mess into something beautiful. Amen.